welcome to the podcast Pod Ipsa Locator, a podcast for Connecticut trial attorneys by Connecticut trial attorneys, with your hosts, John Kennedy and Mike Walsh. Good afternoon, everyone. Today we have a couple of special guests. My name is John Kennedy, and we're doing our usual podcast, Pod Ipsa Locator, with my co-host, Mike Walsh. And today we have two uh, very prominent staff counsel who've been practiced for a long period of time here in Connecticut to talk to us a little bit about how things have changed and what we can do going forward to try to make things work. We have with us Cindy Garrity, who I've known for forever, it seems like. She's been <laughs> staff counsel to Travelers. I can't believe it. She told me it's almost 28 years, which is amazing <laughs> to me. And we have Keith McCabe, who some of you know is at staff counsel for State Auto. And in a previous life, he's also worked in a number of private firms over the years. So I want to start out by just asking, how have things changed for you with the pandemic? How are you guys surviving and how are your offices working? Well, Cindy, I'll take uh, ladies first. <laughs> Good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously, the, the biggest change is we're all virtual, trying to get everything done electronically via via Zoom for, for depositions. Like everybody else, whether you're defense or plaintiffs orientated, the trial dates are gone. Pre-trials were a little harder to get going initially as were, you know, motions to be argued. So I, I think we've all done, whether it's defense counsel or plaintiffs counsel, I think we've done an excellent job moving into the new electronic world that, that we're in. I think what I'd like to see is trials get put back on the, the calendar and, you know, us to be able to move forward with, with those. I think settlements have slowed down because of lack of trials being on the, on the calendar. I think we all play that little game of chicken, right? Like who's going yeah. to do what? And, and that's been taken away from us um, without any looming um, trial dates out there. So I think settlements for us have been something that I think has, has really slowed down and, right. and we'd like to move forward with. Well, you have and, five or six people I, in your office and Keith, you only have yourself, I think, right? And, and, and two others. And two others. Correct. So yeah. what have you seen so far? Well, I, I, I would, I, I agree with what Cindy said. And in particular, you know, there was, when we first got locked down, there was that first two month, maybe three month period where almost nothing was getting done. Uh, you know, I mean, it, people weren't sure what was going to happen with business and how you were going to do stuff. So I, I think very little got done during that period of time. Now we're moving forward again, depots, pretrials and so forth. And settlements have clearly slowed down. And again, during that first few months, there was virtually nothing. But at least from my carer's perspective, and I would imagine most, they're now over the last couple of months have now been, well, let's try to resolve some stuff. How can we get rid of things? Because we don't want them sitting around for another year. So everything that we had scheduled this year is now being rescheduled a year down the road. They don't want to have it open for another year. So initially there was this, okay, let's see what's going to happen. Now there's a push to try to resolve cases because they've got these cases just sitting on the books. Yeah. It seems to me that there was early in the pandemic, there, the cases that were kind of in line to be tried that were canceled those cases got resolved, and then now we're in the time frame where nothing has been prepared in the pipeline. So there's been. Kind I, of I think that's true. We had a, a couple. We had some cases that settled that had been scheduled for trial in April and May because, even though the trial date wasn't going to be going forward, I think no one wanted to sit around and wait for another year. But then you know we had these trials that were scheduled for September, October, November. Although I hear 
New Haven is starting jury trials next week. But, you know, those cases are getting rescheduled. And now what? Now, how? what what can we do with those cases? I think that's sort of the dilemma we're facing now is, is how to get rid of those cases. Yeah. And I, I will say, John, that we've done a lot of mediations, which have mm-hmm. continued throughout <clears throat> this sort of, you know, work from home shutdown era. But what I've found is that a lot of them are, are are stalling much more than would have. And I don't know, you know, exactly why that is, if it's because, again, there is no looming trial date or if it's, you know, I don't know, people just aren't putting everything into it. Um, I've, I've had more mediations than ever that have gone through our offices, whether it's the Hamden office or the Hartford office that seem to, you know, stall after an hour or two. And people are just like, listen, we're not ready to talk. We'll come back later on down the road. So, which is a new phenomenon. And I'm not really sure why that is. Um, I I think there's some of that. And I think part of that is, frankly, is just because uh, it's remote. (laughs) I think, I think people approach it differently. I, I, you know, it's like a remote pretrial. You, you, you you, you can sit and look at your file for two minutes before you have to log on. You know what I mean? Like back in the day, you would actually prepare. I think some people have taken that sort of approach with mediations. They've almost used it like a pretrial. Like, let's just see where things are. Let's see where things, I, I don't think, I mean, I've, I've done some that have gone well, they've settled, but others, I think people have approached it with sort of the notion is just to see where things are rather than an in-person mediation where everyone is there trying to resolve the case. And let me pick up on that if I could. And I just want to also say, Keith and Cindy, thank you very much for doing this. We really appreciate it. And the whole remote status is really kind of interesting because I do think it's easier to not get as involved when you're doing something remotely. It's a lot harder when you're facing a judge face-to-face, but on a screen, it's easier just to say no. And I think that works both sides, both plaintiffs and defendants. The question I have picking up on the, you know, the idea of doing things by remote video, have you had any kind of policy with your attorneys as to whether or not they can take depositions remotely, whether they should, whether they shouldn't, or is it kind of left up to them as, as to what they can do? Yeah, so from our standpoint, it's left up to the attorneys and the parties involved, right? So if, you know, if it's John and I have a case and we're trying to figure out, should it be remote, should it be in person? We leave it up to John and I and and our particular clients. I mean, I think each client has their own set of circumstances as to whether or not they want to be in a room with other people or or do it remotely. I, I will say that we are not able to hold in-person depositions in our office, but if the other side or there's someone else involved that has a conference room, we can do it live someplace else or go to a court reporter's office and, and do them live. Yeah, my, my carrier also does not have any restrictions in that regard. In other words, it's up to the individual attorney. So mm-hmm. I prefer in-person depots uh, to the extent that people are unwilling to do them. I do them remotely. Uh, you know, uh, there are some in our office, uh, people who have concerns. And so they've been doing everything remote, which is fine. I've heard of other carriers, I think Progressive, where they're not even allowed to do in-person depositions, yeah. which I thought was surprising, but we don't have those restrictions in place. So we're, it's like Cindy said, it's left up to the discretion of the lawyers involved. Yeah, we do have restrictions, obviously, of, you know, wearing masks, you know, and right. socially distancing and, and those sorts of things. That, are, um, are you guys back in the was... office yet, Cindy? Well, we're we're not back in the office. I mean, attorneys can come in and use their offices for like me today um, if they have depositions or mediations or things that it's easier for them to be in the office to do. We are 
we are returning some folks to work more more around the support staff beginning November 9th. So we'll have people who can come in. Then people have to opt in. Nobody's obviously required to to come back. So we do have some support who are opting in, some who aren't. And um, but that's starting November 9th. We've actually been open just about the entire time, although it is still left up to the individuals. So we have somebody who is working remotely, but our staff is in the office. Uh, we have someone there five days a week. But again, that's voluntarily. We're not requiring that they be there. Uh, it's just, I think, uh, the staff that we have figure it's easier to do their work in the office. So, for example, we've conducted depositions in the office. So we're, from that perspective, chugging along normally. Is there any difference in the number of cases that you're seeing new matters coming in? Uh, there was when everything first hit, there was definitely a decrease. And, you know, in that, especially that March, April time period when I guess people just didn't bother going to the marshal and the executive orders were in place, you know, although, you know, nobody's tested that yet. But um, so there was, I would say, two months, maybe three months where we had significantly fewer uh, new cases that were uh, now at this point, I would say we're we're about normal. Yeah, I would say we didn't see a, a huge drop off, I would say for maybe the first couple of weeks in March, maybe there was a, or maybe even early April, there's a drop off. But I would say our, you know, new files coming in are, are fairly steady, maybe a slight decrease, but nothing like, you know, some people I know have talked about 30% reductions, but we we haven't seen that. Yeah. Although I, according to claims, of course, this wouldn't, we wouldn't see this effect until one to two years down the road. Mm-hmm. But it, according to the people in claims that March through June time period, they received third, like 30, 40% less new claims, which makes sense. Obviously, people were locked up. They weren't moving around. Although, interestingly, they said they seem to have a much lower percentage of cases, although higher damages, like a bigger Yeah, cases. higher severity. Yeah. Yeah. They, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you, Cindy. <laughs> yeah. I'll get those insurance words for you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Higher, <laughs> higher severity, but, um, but uh, much fewer mm-hmm. cases. So, uh, you know, again, that may you know, a year from now, we may suddenly see a lot less cases in the pipeline. You know, that's something that shakes out over time. Let me ask you a question. You had mentioned, Keith, the governor's orders. One of the questions that's been popping around the CTLA is, you know, that extension of like yeah. the statute of limitations. <laughs> is that even still in effect? I don't even know. <laughs> I think, yeah. I think it's forever, no. Keith. I don't think there's ever going to be limitations. Yeah, again. yeah. yeah. No. I think it's like November 9th or something, That's isn't right. it? That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to be the guy who tests it in front of the Supreme Court. But my question is, um, how does that apply to the offer at compromise? This is a debate we've been kind of having mm-hmm. among a lot of plaintiffs. Do you guys consider that extension to apply to the offer of compromise? Or, and I'm just interested because, you know, you're two defense attorneys and we're always yeah. interested in the other, other side's view on these things. So you uh, mean if you filed an offer of compromise back in April, can we still accept it? Well, yeah. Is it still open? Like, does that 30 yeah. days get extended? Because the governor's language is pretty broad, pretty much says any deadline is extended. So we're all wondering, you know, what effect does that have? <laughs> That's a good question. I, you know, it's funny. I never thought about, I never, uh, when I read it, I didn't read it that way. But now that you say mm-hmm. that, I think it, you could read it that way. I, I mean, from my it's perspective, it's a practical. 
Well, from my <laughs> yeah, you should be quiet. <laughs> yeah, no, but from my perspective, as a practical matter, it probably doesn't mean a lot because, frankly, I mean, uh, Cindy can speak to this too, as uh, I'm sure. But I, I very rarely receive an offer of compromise that I'm going to consider accepting. Yeah. I mean, it's it simply is something I have to worry about if the case gets tried and are they going to beat it. But you know, the, uh, so I I never even pay attention to the timeline for accepting those, uh, yeah. frankly. Yeah. And and <laughs> I'll, I'll say from our standpoint that. As you said, you don't want to be the person to test it, right? So from our standpoint, if there was an OC that we were interested in and we wanted to accept it, in fact, you know, I did just have one that, that just came through that we did accept. And like he said, that's very rare from our end, but we did. And I'm not, you know, I wasn't like, oh, let's wait, you know, until after November 9th. Um, so we did, we're just treating them like, you know, going along as if there's deadlines. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I I don't think I've ever had one accepted either. But I always, <laughs> you know, I always start playing three dimensional chess with those things in terms of what number I should pick, and it usually is a number that's way off anyhow. So well, yeah, I can, I can tell you what we we have not done is changed what we have told claims in that regard. So for example, when I get an offer mm -hmm. of compromise, and I, I don't want to have to get into that morass, so I've just told yeah. them we've got thirty days to accept it ah, because. That's the same thing I, to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting to... thing, and maybe we can get your perspective on it. There's nothing to do with the pandemic, but... When someone files an offer of compromise, is it your thought process that that's the, the demand or do you sometimes, if a lawyer no, says to you, this is a real offer of compromise and I'm never that, taking less than that number, do you believe that? Or yeah, in, my, in, in my experience, most plaintiff's attorneys, not all of them, significantly misuse the OC by filing it at some pie in the sky number. And, and I know it's for negotiation purposes because if you have a case, eventually you're going to settle for 50. You don't want to file an OC for 75 because none of that's your demand and, you know, they're going to squeeze you and so on and so forth. So I understand the reason for it. But to me, it's just that the, the OCs are filed at numbers that they can't hit unless everything absolutely goes right. And from that perspective, it puts zero pressure on the carrier. Yeah, the one yeah I would... They're helpful when you have a policy limit case. You know, right. you got a low policy limit and you're close. I'm sorry, Cindy, I cut you off. No, I was going to say, I, I would agree with that. And what you just said was my thought was, you know, the times where they're probably the most meaningful is where, you know, it's a 50 or 100 policy and yeah. you file it for that. I, I will say, though, John, that if you filed an OC for a number and you came and you came to me and said, this is what I'm taking, I'm not taking a dime less that would be meaningful to me, right? So I think it depends upon the attorney who says that. Because yeah, some, some people, you know, they're going to say it and you're going to say, okay, that's their but number. I mean, the, the way I typically see amused is if you've got a soft tissue case that, you know, it's a straightforward case and at some point it's going to settle for twenty to $40,000, I get an OC in that case for like one fifty. you know, for, yeah, I mean, it's something like that. It's just, it, yeah. what's the point? Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's not even something that we bother responding to. Yeah, no, no I agree. Cindy, you're making a big mistake by putting that kind of trust in John, too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I knew yeah. I had to come to this. I knew yeah. I had to come to this. So I have a question. Considering where we are, what thoughts do you guys have on what plaintiffs' lawyers can do to move their cases forward and to get them resolved? I mean, I mean, we have things like courtside trials and mediations and arbitrations, but what up, you know, besides those things, and in addition to those things, what else is out there? How do you keep the case moving to try to get to the end right now? Well, I'll say that he said that the, at least my carrier, you know, I know we all know there's some 
carriers that are different, but they're very interested in continuing to move cases and to settle them. You know, it doesn't behoove anybody to have them sitting on the books for another year. I think one of the things that we found, and that has nothing to do with the plaintiff's counsel, but it's a little harder and it takes a little longer to get medical records, right? I think maybe um, hospitals and doctors and people are saying, oh, I'm overwhelmed, it's COVID, I can't get you this stuff. But I find that that's probably one of the biggest challenges to getting to a number where people can resolve it, right? Because the insurance companies want to make sure they have all the information out there, all the bills, all the medicals, you know, how, how it goes. And trying to figure out a way how to push that and to get those sooner, I think would be helpful. I don't know how to tell you how to do that, but yeah. um, it would. Yeah. I, I think that would lead to you know, earlier settlements. I think going to mediations with the understanding that people are, are going in there with good numbers and, and willing to settle it, even though we're a year out from trial or nine months out to trial, I think would be beneficial. And I think, uh, you know, the resumption of trials is going to be the biggest thing only because, uh, yeah. look, I know everyone likes to blame the insurance companies, but I have to tell you, in my experience, you know, 75% of the time, uh, the case doesn't settle until a month before trial, honestly, because plaintiff's attorney has got an $80,000 demand on a $20,000 case. And I don't know if it's just because they just, they have a cycle of cases. And so whether one settles six months early doesn't make any difference, but it, it just, in my experience, they don't get realistic until uh, the trial is approaching. You know, it's sort of the reverse, like insurance companies pre-suit, they make a $9,000 offer on an $80,000 case. Uh, you know, pre-suit, they're completely unrealistic, but I don't know. For in my experience, in most cases, you know, I could get a reasonable amount of authority, but it's just that that oftentimes plaintiffs' attorneys, not necessarily the ones you know at, at established firms and so on and so forth, but you know, we deal with so many lawyers who are solos and so on and so forth, and and many of them just they don't get realistic until they're faced with a trial. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's really good advice. Uh, mediation takes a lot of work before you even get in the door to make it meaningful. Yeah. Let me ask you guys a question. What would you what would you say if you had an opportunity to talk to a big group of plaintiffs attorneys? What would you say? Look, you guys, we love you, but this is what you're doing wrong. Okay. And I'm gonna answer it even before I let you guys answer because I I know what my answer would be to that. And I did way back a long time ago. I actually did some defense work. And one of the things I think that plaintiffs do wrong is when they threaten bad faith when you know when there's really no bad faith. I mean it seems to me that's like I mean the bad faith standard is kind of high. And it seems to me when you start really kind of throwing that around, I would think that's the kind of thing that claim reps and you know defense counsel would say, look, this is silly. And maybe treat that claim a little differently because you did it. Um, is there anything like that along those lines that you think, like, look, you guys just stop doing it? Well, I, I would say getting realistic. And and uh, if what I would recommend for plaintiffs to do is do what Allstate does, but the reverse. If you've got a thirty thousand dollar case, file an OC for thirty thousand, and when they want you to negotiate, tell them to go pound sand and pay the thirty. Eventually, they will. I just, you know, the, you know, demanding 80 and sticking at that and then going to 60 a month before and then falling to 40 and then the case finally settles doesn't do anybody any good. You're not obligated to negotiate. If you make a, what you think is a reasonable demand, just stick with it. You don't have to pretend now that that's your ceiling and or whatever. You know, I, I, I just think that's the mistake that is made on both ends. But, you know, I think defense lawyers do it also, obviously. But, uh, you know, when when it comes to a case that I'm defending, you know, if uh, if I had a $30,000 case and they came to me with a $30,000 demand and filed the OC for that amount, we'd probably pay it. (laughs) 
you yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. the, the case would go away maybe for 28 or whatever, but I mean, it would go away, but that just doesn't happen. Makes sense. Yeah. I would say the same thing is, is realizing that, you know, if you're not, I mean, I don't know if I should be talking about other insurance companies, but you know, you're not dealing with the liberties in the all states all the time yeah. and that the other carriers are willing to have serious negotiations well before a trial and well before the courthouse steps, you know, they may want to get a deposition done. So we may have to get that done. But other than that, you know, kind of listen to defense counsel when they're telling you, listen, we're not going to pay more than this, or you know what, I've got this number and it's not much more. And, you know, it may not be a number you want. So it may be a number you want to go to trial on, right. But if, if it's not, I, I wouldn't just, you know, keep kicking the can down the road waiting to get, you know, into the, the courthouse, if that's what they're telling you. That's good advice. I've always wondered how it was that some cases, for example, at your office, Cindy or Keith, get sent out. I mean, sometimes it's because the demand is beyond the coverage or, but are the, what are the parameters as to why a case stays at staff council and why it gets farmed out to somebody else? Usually a conflict. Yeah. yeah. Like for us, it's usually yeah. a conflict for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the same thing for us. It gets yeah. farmed out because we develop a conflict for one reason or another. Or sometimes, like, for example, we just referred out a case that was, it came into the office as a simple food poisoning case. And believe it or not, <laughs> the lady ate raw oysters at an all-you-can-eat buffet, um, <laughs> which, which if that's not comparative negligence, I don't know what is. But... Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> But uh, but it just turned into a giant morass because you ended up with five, you have the restaurant and then five different seafood suppliers. Then they brought in, you know, the trucking companies, then they brought in the farmers. And, and it's just, we don't have the time to devote to that case. You know, it's just, okay. it's, you know what I mean? So it, sometimes stuff will go out for that reason, just because it's, you know, it's just, we're not equipped to handle that. You need an army of people working on it. So, but usually yeah. it's because there's a conflict of, of some kind. Yeah. Or sometimes it could be like just a trial calendar conflict, right? Is, right. you know, not so much since the Hartford and Hamden offices combined because we have more attorneys to spread it around to. But, you know, in the past, there'd just be times where everyone's got a trial coming up and we just can't handle them all. So it'll get kicked out. I noticed out with to, to Allstate, a lot of cases go out of right before trials. Yeah. Yeah, well. yeah. yeah, like they couldn't, like they didn't know that trial was going to actually happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just a volume problem for them. Yeah. Yeah, you know? Well, yeah, you can't handle, you, know, you can't hire that many attorneys. Yeah. That's, a, you know, one of the lawyers in our office uh, had, had worked at uh, Allstate and then at, uh, I think, Hanover. And he worked at Allstate for three years and had 36 trials. <laughs> yeah, worked, yeah. worked at Hanover for like eight years and had three or whatever it was. That <laughs> just that gives you an idea. <laughs> yeah. You guys always seem to have a good finger on the pulse when it comes to what, what the trends are, like going into the future in terms of, you know, companies and staff council's offices. Do you think there's going to be just like a few auto carriers that are just going to capture the whole market in the future? Or do you see the trends being kind of a continuation of what's going on now? Like, what what do you guys think is going on, like in the kind of in the you know the tort market, the staff council world, that type of thing? Well, I hope I, it's not just a couple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. I'll I have think to you'll fight still Keith. see that. Well, I still think you'll 
you'll see the big carriers still dominate, but there's enough medium-sized carriers, I think, that are all financially healthy and that uh, will continue. You know, including as many carriers who are small enough, they can't even have a staff council office, right? Because they don't have enough files or whatever. But I think we'll probably continue in the current model, uh, would be my guess. Yeah, I would think so. I haven't heard any, you know, noise out there at all about any acquisitions, mergers or anything of that sort that you you hear every once in a while. I think COVID has definitely slowed all of that down. I think all carriers are themselves, you know, worried about their own, you know, ROE and how they're doing in the marketplace with premiums and all of that. So I, I wouldn't anticipate seeing, you know, anything happen in the near future in that regard. It's interesting for the first time ever in my 40 plus years, I saw insurance companies giving rebates to everybody, which was, which was really an amazing thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to be fair, they were driving, you know, 20, 25% less. So (laughs) I mean, still, that never happened before. It was kind of a different different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're trying to get those, you know, keep their retention high, right? (laughs) Keep keep people happy. Right. Well, thank you guys. I don't know if you have any more questions, Mike. I'm, no, I'm... it's been really, really interesting. Um, I really appreciate both of you taking time out of your day to do this. This is the kind of stuff that we as plaintiff attorneys, we love to hear, you know, just yeah. kind of reasonable advice. And I think you guys really nailed it um, in terms of, you know, kind of what we were looking for. So I really want to thank you both. And it's really been our pleasure having you on the podcast. Sure. Well, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Yeah. It's thank been you. Fun. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Take care. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Pod Ipsa Locator. The number to contact the CTLA is 860-522-4345. Their website is located at cttriallawyers.org. 